So every story about a Soviet Armenian leader that has been uh, discussed on this podcast has begun in Yerevan. And what do I mean by that? I mean that really there is a monument. There are kind of memorials to these different Soviet figures throughout the city of Yerevan. So when you stroll down Mashtots Avenue, there is a school named after Stepan Shaumian. And you have a, a statue of Shaumian right in front of that school, right? So you have the school named after Stepan Shaumian, and you have the statue Stepan Shaumian. But in addition to, in Yerevan, the Shaumian school and statue, even the capital of Artsakh, Stepanakert, is named after this revolutionary hero. Varev, my name is Pietro Kekarian, and I'm presenting to you the latest episode of Seven Who Made History. Today's profile focuses on Stepan Shamyan, who led something known as the Baku Commune during the Russian Revolution. This is an untold story. Actually, real, it's been told by others before, like Ron Suni, but it is a story that should be told more of the Russian Revolution uh, outside Petrograd, outside of the major centers of power. And it is a story about the Russian Revolution on the periphery. So Stepan Shamyan led something known as the Baku Commune, but he also was instrumental in developing Soviet nationality policy. He was, by all means, an internationalist. But he also was somebody who was sensitive to Armenian national concerns. This is something that actually isn't as well known. People think of him as the great kind of internationalist revolutionary leader, the Caucasian Lenin. But also, he was uh, very sensitive, you know, growing up from his background in Tiflis, because actually he was not himself from Baku, but he was from Tiflis. He was sensitive to the diversity of the Russian Empire and all these different nationalities. He was actually in many ways a theoretician of the Soviet nationality policy in its early phase. So who was Stepan Shamian? Really, we have to step back and look at his history. He was born on October the 1st, 1878, in Tiflis, to a bourgeois family. So again, we have, just like Lenin, just like so many of these leaders, somebody, uh, just like Nersik Stepanian, somebody who came from a bourgeois background and rose through the ranks to become uh, one of the most high-profile Bolshevik revolutionaries of Armenian origin. Uh, and really one of the major figures of the Russian Revolution, especially in the Caucasus. So this is how he more or less begins. And Stepan Shamyan also, from a young age, demonstrated that he was very good at, uh, you know, his academic work. He was very good at languages, especially. Not only did he have, of course, uh, the knowledge of Armenian, but he also knew Georgian. He also uh, really uh, brilliantly, perfectly knew Russian. This was somebody who really actually acted as a Russian tutor for many people. He was a great academic and a great, you know, not only a revolutionary activist eventually, but also somebody, a young man who had extraordinary intellectual potential and energy. And it was in 1895 that actually in today the city of Stepanovan, which is actually also named after Stepan Shamyan, 
and it is also the location of the Stepan Shamyan House Museum. So there is in, in Armenia, in our lovely Armenia, a Stepan Shamyan House Museum in Stepanavan, in Lori. It was here that Shamyan met uh, the love of his life, Yekaterina Ter Grigorian. And this was the great romance that began when he left Stepanavan and went back to Tiflis. He actually began a, what they call, novel in letters to her. You know, that this was a very kind of passionate romance. Not only are we talking about a man of great intellectual uh, and revolutionary passion, but also great romantic uh, passion as well, too. Speaking of Yerevan, walking on the streets of Yerevan, everybody, of course, knows Abovian Street. On Abovian Street, there is a great, uh, you know, statue to a great oil magnate from Baku, Mantashev. So Alexander Montashev, a great Armenian oil magnate from Baku, his statue is right there on Abovian Street. And actually, Stepan Shamyan acted as a tutor for the magnate's children, if you can believe this. And actually, the story goes, now this was really emphasized in Soviet times, that uh, Montashev was so impressed with the young Shamyan that he even offered the hand of his daughter to Stepan, that, you know, hey, Maybe you and my daughter should get together, but uh, in keeping with the great, you know, kind of almost uh, revolutionary mythology of the Soviet historiography, Shamian turned this down and he preferred to stay with his beloved Yekaterina. And so this was kind of, uh, you know, more or less how, you know, Shamian kind of came to be. This was his origins. Now, it's important to understand what is the dynamic of Tiflis. Tiflis is a wonderfully uh, diverse and uh, dynamic city. It is the historical center of the Caucasus. Today it's the capital of Georgia, but it still holds that bearing as the center of the Caucasus. In the Russian imperial times, it was uh, the center of the kind of the Caucasus Krai, the Caucasus region. And uh, really, it was a city where you had Armenians, Georgians, Tatars, which today we would know as Azerbaijanis, Slavs, different ethnic groups kind of getting together, mingling. Actually, at this point in 19th century, it was dominated by Armenians, both demographically and financially. Because the Armenian merchant class, the bourgeoisie, they uh, were the dominant force in, in Tiflis. Um, when we talk about this... Uh, city. It is a wonderfully beautiful dynamic city. It's beautiful. It's a medieval city. You know, so Xiaomian, we also have to consider this. In addition to being, uh, you know, somebody of great academic achievement, he also, because of his language skills, was able to translate. He translated, you know, Maxim Gorky from Russian into Armenian. And he also simultaneously would translate Hovines Tumanyan from Armenian into Russian. So this was, uh, you know, Stepan Shamian, and, and growing up in this beautiful city of Tiflis, he understood what a dynamic, what the importance of the being sensitive to different national cultures. So Shamian actually, uh, you know, from his university days, actually he was expelled from school. So he went to school in Riga, as a matter of fact. He was at the Riga Polytechnic School. He was expelled, uh, you know, for... Uh, participating in, in student strikes, he created the Union of Armenian Social Democrats. This was his this was his big thing, and uh, so he was actually I should you know clarify he was both in in Saint Petersburg and he was in Riga, but he was you know very influential in organizing uh, you know Armenian students around revolutionary uh, ideals, uh, so to speak. But then he also would go abroad. 
he went to Berlin and he studied in Germany as well too. And actually the funding for his studies in Germany was actually funded by uh, Montashev. So this is actually again the oil magnet. And this is actually interesting that somebody who was, you know, really an extremely rich man, a very wealthy magnet in, in Baku, was funding somebody who would later become the great kind of revolutionary uh, leader of the Baku Commune. So you have that. You have those, uh, you know, dynamics kind of going on. This is, uh, this Xiaomian, like I said, over the years, became more and more involved in revolutionary activity, underground revolutionary activity. He became involved with a correspondence with Lenin about the development of Soviet nationality policy. This is actually quite interesting. So really what we ended up having is... Uh, two revolutions in Russia. If we look at 1917, what happens? You have first the revolution of February 1917 and the second revolution of October 1917, which was, in fact, a, a revolution. You have some academics on the political right who would argue, well, no, 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 this was a Bolshevik coup. But the reality is that actually the events in Petrograd in October 1917, actually, technically, if we would go by the new calendar, there would be November 1917, but you have that. That that actually constituted a, a real revolution because, if in fact, um, it was something that was popularly supported. The Bolsheviks had very very tight platform. This platform was very very simple. It was basically peace, land, and bread, right? So, peace being an end to the war. This was the fatal mistake of the provisional government that was established in February 1917, led by Alexander Kerensky. The idea that we should continue the war, because the war in Russia, World War I, was deeply unpopular. So basically Kerensky was you know, vowing to continue that, but the majority of the people didn't like that. The second issue was, of course, land. This was very big for the peasants. They wanted their own land. And bread basically chleb, this idea that they, the need for, you know, food. The Bolsheviks platform was popularly received and they came to power in October 1917 or November 1917, depending on how you look at the dates. But at that point, you actually had at the first Congress of the Bolshevik Organization of the Caucasus, actually, which was in our, you know, lovely city of Tiflis, you had a big debate that emerged involving Xiaomian about the course of the Soviet nationality policy. And Xiaomian actually was advocating for a more or less kind of, for the first time, a territorial division of, of, of self-governance. He actually believed in kind of establishing kind of home rule, so to speak, for the nationalities of the Caucasus. He had this idea that there should effectively be three kind of provinces in, in the Caucasus. One, that would be, uh, you know, Western uh, Transcaucasia, which would be more or less kind of Georgia. And then Eastern Transcaucasia, which would be more or less Armenia. And then Baku, which would be more or less what is today Azerbaijan. And so this was kind of his idea, kind of formulating uh, these, this question of kind of, you know, national self-rule. He also believed that the local population of uh, Ottoman Armenia should be able to freely join uh, the, the Russian Armenia, or excuse me, the uh, new kind of, the envisioned, uh, you know, Bolshevik Armenia, if they wished. So this was uh, kind of his, his grand vision. But this is actually really where kind of, his ideas begin on Soviet nationality policy. He exchanges letters back and forth with Lenin on this. 
Um, actually, Mikoyan was one of the people, along with, I should say, uh, Makradze and, and other, you know, kind of Caucasian Bolsheviks who kind of pushed back a little bit on Xiaomian. But Xiaomian actually won the day, uh, ultimately, in this uh, debate about uh, nationalities, where, you know, how the Soviet nationality policy should develop. And there was a big debate also about the nature of what is uh, self-determination. So Lenin had this idea of self-determination. He was thinking about the right of self-determination being synonymous with secession, but Xiaomian had a much broader vision for this, which could be that there could be, uh, you know, self-determination within a state that would enable nationalities to express themselves within kind of the framework of a kind of a, uh, I guess you could call it like a uh, federation, so to speak, or kind of a, uh, you know, federal sort of government and or kind of autonomy within within a state, so to speak. So these terms, even these ideas of autonomy, federation, you know, confederation, these would be terms that would be much debated among the Bolsheviks at the time. So we fast forward to the developments going on in the Caucasus. Of all the Caucasian cities, uh, the in fact, actually, this is an interesting fact, that the city of uh, what is today Gyumri, Alexandropol, um, was actually a larger city than Yerevan. Even though Yerevan was the capital of Yerevanskaya Gubernia, it was the capital of the Yerevan province, the city of Alexandropol, or Gyumri, was in fact larger. But the two major cities, and probably you could also say Batumi as well too, but the Two major cities were Tiflis and Baku, and Baku was the one city that was ripe for kind of revolution. And why would it be ripe for revolution? Because you had here major, major kind of class divisions. Nationality would often overlap with this. So this is what Ronald Grigor Suni, the eminent scholar, has written about with his landmark book, The Baku Commune, which I would highly recommend you read if you have not had a chance to read that book. And basically, in most of these cases, you would have kind of nationality overlapping with class. So if you look at, you know, Ron has said, actually, in a recent, what Ron Suni has actually written in a recent article in Jacobin, and this was around the time of the 100th anniversary of the October Revolution. He wrote that foreign investors and engineers sat at the top of the social hierarchy alongside Armenian and Russian industrialists and Azerbaijani shipowners. Uh, Russian and Armenian workers held the most skilled positions, and the unskilled workforce consisted of Muslims. Uh, as the most transient and vulnerable workers, they ended up with the dirtiest jobs. So you had kind of a kind of a uh, situation where often nationality would overlap with, with class. And it was in this situation that Xiaomian kind of emerged as the major uh, revolutionary force that it would guide Baku toward the formation of this commune so to speak. And in fact, actually, the even though many of the Muslim workers had the dirtiest jobs, they were actually also the least political uh, force in many ways in, in, in this region. Uh, Baku was not a stranger to violence as a city. That Baku had gone through this massive period of industrialization. When the Russian Empire took in Baku, and there were different phases on this, so uh, the interest that Russia had strategic interest in Baku goes all the way back to the 1720s, to Peter the Great's campaign in the Caucasus. But it wasn't until the early 19th century that Baku formally really became a lasting part of the Russian Empire. And again, this was strategic because there was an interest in kind of using Baku as a launching point to access to trade, to access to resources, and this sort of a thing. But it was in the mid-19th century that Baku really gained its major importance, which was for its oil industry. 
that when oil was discovered in Baku in the mid-19th century, Baku really kind of took off as a major industrial city. And this is how we get, again, these class divisions that emerge in Baku. It was the first Russian Revolution before the two revolutions of 1917. The one of 1905, the Russian Revolution of 1905, that you had the first eruption of violence between Armenians and Muslims in Baku. This was known as the Armenian Tatar massacres, and it was in this period of time where you really had kind of a boiling up of these, of these tensions, so to speak. So there was that kind of flammability right there. But with the October Revolution of 1917, there were different responses to this throughout the Russian Empire, and in Baku you had the emergence of two kind of major centers. One was Aiku, or actually what was known as the Executive Committee for Public Organizations. Now, this was something that was, you know, supported by civil servants, lawyers. Um, basically, this was kind of the bourgeois, you know, Baku. Whereas there was, uh, at the same time, the Workers' Soviet. And the Workers' Soviet was chaired by this time by our good friend Xiaomian. And the Workers' Soviet consisted of the, all the revolutionary forces, the revolutionary social democrats, which would be the Bolsheviks, the Mensheviks, uh, the Dajnaks, actually, as a matter of fact, so the ARF, and the socialist revolutionaries. And they were all united in this coalition. And the Muslims, too, eventually would, would join. But, I mean, when this began, they were not immediately included, but they were included over time as well, too. What you ended up having was really... Uh, a kind of, how do I say this, that when you had the uh, October Revolution of 1917, pretty soon, eventually, power did um, fall within the hands of kind of, I guess you could say, the Soviets. You know, Soviet, what is Soviet? In Russian, Soviet means advice. Soviet means advice. So uh, really, what we're talking about when we talk about Soviets we're talking about kind of democratically elected kind of councils of, you know, workers and peasants. That's really what we're talking about this time. This is not to be... So everybody, when they think about the Soviet Union, they kind of roll their eyes and they think about maybe, you know, the Stalinist regime or something like this. But in fact, when we look at these very early periods of revolution in the Caucasus, we can see that uh, Soviet actually meant something much more different. This was, we're talking about a kind of a democratically elected council of workers and peasants. It's, it's a representative body. And when you have the October Revolution, this is actually met with uh, really kind of the emergence of violence in uh, Baku, where you have kind of Muslim-Soviet clashes. And eventually, in March 1918, this actually becomes kind of an anti-Muslim pogrom. This actually has been exploited for propaganda purposes by today the Aliyev government in Azerbaijan. But from this moment of tragedy, uh, the Baku Commune, led by Shamian, emerged as the major force in, in the city of Baku. As Shamian himself wrote, our influence, that of the Bolsheviks, was great before, but now we are the bosses of the situation in the full sense of the word. So this was really, uh, you know, a time when the Baku Commune became a, uh, you know, major revolutionary organization. They followed actually kind of the vision of Marx in his ideals of the Paris Commune, um, they actually nationalized the oil industry. They attempted to make uh, major reforms. Uh, when we talk about judiciary, when we talk about kind of the educational system, uh, but also they pursued power democratically. They did not like to use terror or oppression. This is why Shamian is regarded as the Caucasian Lenin. He actually took a much more kind of moderate stance 
almost like foreshadowing, I guess you could say in some ways, uh, the new economic policy of the 1920s. And so this was really what he was, you know, what, what the Baku commune was all about. Actually, Mikoyan, again, was part of this commune as were others. We think about Alyosha Japaridze, we think about uh, you know, Fioletov, very, very prominent figures from the Baku commune uh, were involved in this as well. You know, uh, Aziz Bekov, so we have the city in Armenia that was once known as Aziz Bekov, but now it is known as Vike, right? This is Vike city. But uh, basically, uh, Aziz Bekov was another one of these Baku revolutionaries who was participating with Shamian in this commune, which was a great experiment in kind of democratic socialism, a democratic socialist commune in the Caucasus. But it did not last long because you ended up having a situation where the British uh, basically took over, you know, in the region. And Shamian actually was placed under arrest. So this actually was a major kind of uh, problem. Basically, he was arrested by the British. Now, actually, you have to think, there was actually kind of a, almost like a kind of cooperative relationship that Xiaomian had initially with the British. There was actually an invitation to bring in the British uh, into the region because the threat of Turkey, the threat of the Ottomans, was so much greater that they decided to, the, the Soviet voted to bring the British, allow the British to come in. But this coalition with the British did not last, and the British arrested Shamian. But then with the impending, uh, with actually the uh, impending entry of the Ottomans into, the, into Baku. So this is actually quite interesting too. Another uh, side note, that this period of, uh, you know, civil war revolution in the region corresponds also to, uh, also kind of aligns with this broader history of the Armenian genocide, that really Turkey invaded the Caucasus uh, with this grand vision of kind of continuing the genocide in the Caucasus, with continuing this idea of establishing a pan-Turkic link. Uh, and so Enver Pasha's army of Islam was advancing toward Baku. And at this point, what ended up happening is, uh, in this kind of chaotic period, the uh, Shalmian and his revolutionary comrades were sprung from prison by, by Anastas Mikoyan. So Mikoyan broke in, he saved his revolutionary comrade Shalmian, who was a great friend of his, and basically they fled across uh, the Caspian Sea, in a boat to Krasnovodsk. Now, Krasnovodsk today is known as the city of Turkmenbashi, after the late dictator of Turkmenistan, uh, Niazov. So, in Turkmenbashi, or Krasnovodsk, basically, this, uh, this was an area, this territory of Turkmenistan at the time, was controlled by the right SRs, the right socialist revolutionaries. So, there were all sorts of different factions in the Russian Civil War. You had, in addition to the Red Army and the White Army, you also had Nestor Makhno and the Black Army, the anarchist Ukrainians. You had, um, you know, the Green Army, the Peasant Army. You had the right SRs, the left SRs. You had all sorts of different groups. And at the time it happened that Turkmenistan was controlled by the uh, right SRs. So the right SRs were allied with the British. When the, uh, you know, Baku uh, Bolsheviks arrived in Krasnovodsk, they were actually arrested by the right SRs. The right SRs then, what they did, they selected certain leaders of the Baku commune, and they took them out and shot them in the desert of Turkmenistan. It was by mere fate 
by by a mere accident that actually Mikoyan's name was not on this list of commissars to be shot. But unfortunately, Shamian's name was. But uh, the memory of Shamian lived on. Mikoyan, who was still held in prison by the uh, right SRs, eventually was able to, was eventually released from prison, I should say. And he returned to Baku, and he was committed to preserving the memory of the Baku Bolsheviks and the uh, Baku Commune. And he actually also kind of de facto adopted Shamian's sons. And that's how close the Shamian and Mikoyan families are. So if you go today to Moscow, uh, the great-granddaughter of Stepan Shamian, Tatiana Shamian, who's a great specialist in Oriental studies, in, uh, a great specialist in Eastern studies, especially India and Tibet, she actually um, you know, can tell you all sorts of stories uh, about this uh, history. Really, uh, you know, Mikoyan took in uh, the Shamian sons, and worked very, very fervently to preserve the memory. And this is partially the reason why we have this history of Shamian and the Baku commune being so pervasive today in Armenia, in the Caucasus. And that's how we've ended up with places like Stepan Nevan, Stepan the Kert, named after this great revolutionary leader, Stepan Shamian. Not only was his memory preserved, and you see all sorts of, there were all sorts of posters in the 20s saying, oh, you know, the British imperialists killed Shamian, and they did, actually. They were in, they were complicit with the right SRs in, in the murder of, of Shamian, the execution of Shamian, and, and the 26 Baku commissars. So you hear about this idea of the 26, the Baku 26. This is, this is what happened. I mean, they were taken out in the desert of Turkmenistan, and they were shot. And so in addition to preserving their memory, actually, the interesting epilogue that I want to mention is that Levon Shamian, who was the son of Stepan, uh, later became the editor of the Great Soviet Encyclopedia. But in the 1950s, he and Mikoyan came together and actually spearheaded the effort toward de-Stalinization. Really, really crucial effort in you know the all-Soviet history, and in particular in the Armenian history. So Mikoyan, as we know, in... 19, March 1954, March 11th, 1954, came to Yerevan, gave a speech calling for the rehabilitation of Chadens. A week later, one of the first, if not the first, rehabilitation commissions, really a Rasmatrenia reconsideration commission, was established in Soviet Armenia that looked over the cases of those who had been illegally repressed in 1937. But Mikoyan worked with Levon Shamian to rehabilitate other, you know, old Bolsheviks, um, and actually, the Levon Shamian's house on the Moscow embankment became kind of a meeting place for these, uh, you know, old Bolsheviks who were advocating for rehabilitation, de-Stalinization, the denunciation of Stalin's personality cult. So you had people like Alexei Snegov, a very snowy individual, I guess you could say. <laughs> and you had, uh, you had um, uh, Olga Shatunovskaya who also was involved, actually, she was Shalmian's secretary in the Baku commune. And they uh, advised Khrushchev. So Mikoyan and Shalmian said, look, you know, all the testimonies you're telling us, because you have to think they were aware of the repressions in 1937, of course, Mikoyan was. But um, he did not know the full extent of the terror, meaning uh, the life, the conditions of the gulag. So Olga Shatunovskaya to give you an idea how close they were, if you talk today to Tatiana Shamian, who was Levon Shamian's daughter, she would tell you that she, she would refer to Olga Shatunovskaya as Aunt Olya. 
Teotia Olia. So this idea that this that's how close they were, to give you an idea of what, what the relationship was like. And um, they would tell, you know, Mikoyan and uh, Levon Shamian these stories of the horrors of the Gulag. And at that point, Mikoyan and Shamian decided we need to bring Khrushchev in to listen to these stories. And Khrushchev realized when he heard these stories, he was already moving toward the position of denouncing Stalin, but really, he had, at this point, realized that this was something that needed to be done. This was, this was a necessity. And in particular, Snegov emphasized the importance of denouncing Stalin. So we can also tie, uh, you know, not only, we can also look at, you know, Stepan Shamian and his legacy, not only in terms of the Russian Revolution, but also in terms of the anti-Stalinist legacy from his son, Levon. Uh, this, is, this is a very important uh, chapter as well. So, uh, Stepan Shamian was indeed one of the truly great Armenian Bolsheviks and Armenian revolutionary leaders. And he should be remembered as such, not only as a great internationalist, but somebody who worked also to, to preserve and to fight for national expression, national identity, and to kind of um, uh, preserve national identity within the framework of this emerging kind of Soviet state and, and revolutionary movement. <laughs>